Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is a special episode where we'll be talking about not only movies we've been watching, but also the places we watch them. And that's partly because I have a special guest today. Probably if you've been keeping track of film podcasts at all, you've been listening to the movie podcast, uh, which is entering its second season now. And this season, it's going to be a, a series looking at historic cinemas. I'm sure our guest will describe it much better. Uh, but th- that guest is uh, Rico Galliano. Uh, welcome, Rico. Thanks for having me. And thanks for pronouncing my name right. Rare. Well, <laughs> if I'm good for one thing, maybe it's that. Uh, although I've, I've definitely committed grievous sins uh, in that regard uh, on past episodes. Yeah, you cover um, a lot of uh, foreign films. Uh, in, in addition, I'm, I'm very pleased to have a regular on the podcast, also on this episode, because we talk a lot about, at least offline, you know, favorite theaters and theater spaces. And also, I think he happens to work at a place that has one of my favorite cinema spaces, Eric Hines, curator of film at the Museum of Moving Image. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Nick. Great to be back. I think we can maybe begin just, Rico, if you want to maybe just sketch out the idea of the current season, because I, I really like it because basically you're kind of doing a complete history of how a cinema can make make history or, or be a part of a movie's history. And I really like that idea. Maybe if you can just talk a bit about this current season that you've put together. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Every episode is kind of a documentary style look at a single movie theater that contributed in some way to movie history. And in at least one case, you could argue kind of history in general, not even just movie history. Uh, That would be the first episode, which is about the Cinémathèque Française, which not only launched the French New Wave and everything that flowed from that, but also arguably was kind of a prelude to the May 68 uprisings in Paris because there was kind of a protest surrounding that theater and when they fired Henri Langlois, who programmed it. And that protest, again, it's very arguable, but it, there are some who say that it opened a lot of people's eyes to you know some of the injustices in the society and there was an overweening police response to that protest that may have triggered some things. Anyway, so that's the basic idea, but it's also a chance also, honestly, to kind of uplift the concept of movie theaters and theater going at a time when I think both are somewhat under threat, unless you're talking about, you know, giant franchise blockbusters, you know, neighborhood theaters, I think are under threat there. Even here in Los Angeles, there are theaters that have closed that have been around for quite a long time. So it seems like a way to remind people of the importance of the actual cinema going experience and the thesis of the whole thing. And I won't say that it's like super academic. I don't want people to think that this is like some academic treatise, but that if there's a thesis of the thing, it's that movies are not just about movies. They're also about how you take them in. And that that can have a huge impact on how you watch a movie and the, the impact the movie has on you. It can, you know, make a certain kind of filmmaker. It can inspire a certain kind of filmmaker. And in in so doing, you could argue that, you know, movie theaters can, you know, change the world in small ways. Yeah, well, it's certainly a list of theaters that, you know, I would want to learn more about uh, knowing the history of some of them. And, you know, there are theaters that have received, you know, have been in the air also. I mean, I know there was a beautiful volume about the Scala Theater, which I think you'll have on an episode yep. coming up. And then, the, you know, the Elgin Theater, you know, which you talk about in terms of 
the Midnight Movie phenomenon is always close to my heart because I dug out my copy of Midnight Movies, the Jim Hoberman, Jonathan Rosenbaum. You speak with Hoberman on, on that episode, right? That's right. Jay Hoberman is on the uh, on the podcast and he was great. He's like the perfect, for our podcast, he's kind of one of the perfect kinds of guests because he's like super smart and absolutely has, you know, kind of a academic background and, and academic knowledge of movies, but he's also like a, a guy. He's like a real person who can joke around and has fun with the topic. And I mean, that's a really fun topic. For those who don't know, the Elgin Theater is, uh, it, it, as you said, is the birthplace of the Midnight Movie because of their screenings in the very early 70s, like 1971, of uh, Jodorowsky's El Topo. And the story of how that became a phenomenon is just great and fun. I think that's probably one of my favorite episodes, that and the Scala one. Yeah, you know, just rereading that the chapter in in that book, you know, I mean, I'd forgotten John Lennon's role, for example. I guess he <laughs> he came to one of the screenings and then took an interest. Yeah, him and Yoko Ono, one of the people that we spoke to in that episode, is one of the former programmers of the Elgin, named Chuck Zlatkin, and he talks about <laughs> seeing Lennon and uh, Yoko Ono coming in for the first time. And at that point, El Topo had become this kind of phenomenon in New York, and a lot of famous people were showing up. I mean, Robert Redford showed up to that. But the way Chuck Zlatkin describes it is somehow when John Lennon walked up to the box office, I forgot to breathe. <laughs> but it is fascinating. It's like it, he wasn't just a fan. Yeah, he did. He saw the movie and was like, this is so fantastic. He told his business manager that he should buy it and give it a proper release, which, by the way, I mean, kind of proves my thesis. I think that episode, I think, in the most clear way proves the thesis that it matters where and how you see a movie, because that movie was shown at midnight in this very funky theater and created this huge cult phenomenon around it. It was then bought by Alan Klein and given a proper release on Broadway, and it tanked. Mm. Showing that movie at, in the light of day in a like regular Broadway theater was not how you watch that movie, and it just didn't do well. <laughs> right. You needed to be uh, in, in, a, in a very dark place. <laughs> exactly. Preferably yeah. surrounded by a certain kind of smoke. <laughs> that was, I think, recommended for the reviewing from uh, Jodorowsky, yeah. And, well, I'm curious, you know, that is so true about seeing movies that they strike you in a certain way, in a certain place. That might be a good segue for us just to talk about experiences each of us have had mm -hmm. seeing a movie uh, or even just the theater we went to a lot. I definitely have mine in New York. Um, what what was that for you, for you, Rico? Was there a particular movie experience or a particular theater that was really formative for you? Um, I will take the easy way out and talk about the experience that is actually in the podcast because <laughs> I spent a lot of time thinking about it. There are many. I mean, like I remember my first date was at my local neighborhood theater. And of course, I, I will forever love the movie Death Trap, even though it's, you know, not the greatest movie ever made. But I, <laughs> you know, have fond memories of holding a girl's hand for the first time. But <laughs> instead of that, I'll mention the thing I talked about in the podcast, which was I actually worked at a theater in Pittsburgh, my hometown. And that theater was called, at the time it was called the Fulton. Now it's the Byam Theater. It's still there, but it's not a movie house anymore. It's a performance space. And it's kind of amazing because it was at a time, this is like the late 80s, early 90s. It was one of my first jobs. It was at a time when Pittsburgh was not doing well. This is in downtown Pittsburgh. And like a lot of downtowns, it had fallen into disrepair. There was a place there called the Art Theater that showed porn. <laughs> That'll give you some idea of like the arc of what had happened to downtown Pittsburgh in the late 80s. The art form of, of porn. <laughs> yeah, it was artful porn, I guess. 
but uh, not a great place to be. And because of that, I worked for this, you know, film co-op, this kind of indie film co-op, scruffy little film co-op. And we were operating the Fulton Theater. And the Fulton is like a 1300 seat former vaudeville house built in like the early 1900s. It's beautiful. It's huge and gorgeous. But it had just kind of fallen into decrepitude and they needed somebody to like keep the lights on. So we were showing like indie movies and art house movies and cult movies in this huge place that has on the ceiling, you know, like a fresco looking thing. It turns out it's decals. They're like stickers. <laughs> but it was it looked like a fresco on the ceiling of kind of like half naked women kind of frolicking in a in a blue sky background. And the movie that I remember seeing there very early in my tenure at that theater was Wings of Desire. And it has a balcony, that theater, and only the people that worked in the theater were allowed to be in the balcony because it was in such a state of disrepair, it wasn't safe. So I remember watching Wings of Desire like over and over and over again up in this balcony with nobody around me. And if you've seen Wings of Desire, it's like that movie, the camera never stops floating into and around and over things. It literally is up in the sky looking down on Berlin. It's a movie about angels walking the streets of Berlin. And seeing that in a giant theater from the balcony with literally a blue sky painted above you, and very often in an almost empty theater because it was downtown Pittsburgh and like there'd be 10 people to see this movie. But in this cavern, in a space just with this huge sound system it's a 30 foot screen that movie had a huge impact on me that movie made me want to travel it's all about berlin that movie got me into goth music nick cave and the bad seeds and uh crime in the city solution have performances in that movie and i like kind of got the romance of goth music it had just this huge impact i freelance as a travel writer sometimes and i can i think trace it back to the berlin that i saw in that movie and I just am sure that it would not have had that kind of impact if I'd watched it at home on video. I might have liked the film, but I just it wouldn't have kind of stunned me in that way. I mean, that sounds tremendously appropriate for the movie. Just the altitude of a balcony seat is very appropriate. For, that is for right. That. Yeah. And Eric, I, I I know we've we've chatted about this a fair amount before, but I'm I'm curious what what would you first talk about? You know, in terms of a formative theater experiences or places you return to, or even a particular movie. Yeah, I mean. I, there's a cheat here, which I'm going to sort of quickly go past because it's too easy. But I actually think that one of the first major movie experiences I had was at Radio City Music Hall, which wow. is just like, you know, yeah. I mean, insane. Um, it was definitely not the first, but it was definitely within the first year or two of my seeing movies. And I saw uh, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Disney's, uh, in mm. that theater, which was obviously incredible. I think I also saw, because it really was functioning as a movie theater still during that time. I think I saw Peach Dragon there as well. But, mm-hmm. but, uh, but more close to home, uh, it's the Lane Theater on Staten Island, which is um, not a movie palace, but still pretty pretty big. I think it was like 500 seats or something like that. Um, and it was still running through the 80s. I think it closed not long after I saw Dead Poets Society there. Oh, wow. um, I remember it had been open, closed, open, closed for a long time. And it had been opened not too long before the release of Rocky three. Uh. And, uh, and it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had in a movie theater. Just to sort of see mm. the place just kind of like to have that kind of, you know, the gorgeous, you know, I think there's like sort of like a, a night sky theme on the ceiling and it had sort of a certain sense of, of it being old and grand and there being kind of like a, a recessed back area and to see that kind of packed opening night vibe uh, where everybody's sort of participating and it felt a little bit dangerous for a kid to be in that space, but also mm. it was an event. 
movies meant a lot to me. I loved going to the movies. I loved watching movies. The VCR was sort of newish and, and watching movies that way was big, but be able to sort of like have that kind of communal experience that felt a little dangerous, but also exciting at the same time. Like, could I react? Could I laugh at people next to me? Did I have to only look at the screen? You know, there's something about, mm. about the space being animated that, that was meant a lot, you know? And so yeah. honestly, like I, I, there's maybe like 10, 20 experiences in my life that are anything close to how participatory that felt. Um, and for the most part, I think I'm okay with that. You know, I want to be able to, you know, <laughs> the sanctity of the space is important to me and I don't like people making too much noise, but yeah, that, that was, that was a pretty fantastic experience. Yeah. I saw, I saw a movie at Radio City Music Hall as a young kid too. It was uh, Fantasia. Oh, wow. My, yeah. But here's the thing. I was too young for it. And actually my experience of that is that that theater was too big sure. for that movie. Sure. It was like the night on bald mountain sequence at the end with like basically demons frolicking around Yeah, uh, right. for like an eight year old or whatever I was at that time on the screen that must be a thousand feet tall or felt like 10,000 feet tall. Even the Rockettes, I felt like it was like, oh, this is a lot <laughs> to deal with. <laughs> but again, it's the theater. Like it wasn't it was seeing Fantasia on a small screen probably wouldn't have had that effect but it was just like overwhelming sure no i can't yeah. see that that age even just this, the feeling of being overwhelmed uh is pretty strong mm. sure yeah well i like that these are also essentially speaking of el topo hallucinatory experiences <laughs> rocky three you know <laughs> very hallucinatory i had a by the way that is interesting though the idea of the participatory element because that is true and is a huge thing about seeing movies in a theater that I wonder, I mean, there's a reason maybe why the movies that get people into the theater are still the ones where, you know, there'll be a lot of whooping and hollering, you know, superhero movies and things like that. But when we were growing up, there was a lot of those kind of mostly Sylvester Stallone movies that were, I mean, I remember, and it's funny because like, I would consider myself a hardcore liberal, but I remember seeing Rambo too. Sure. And like, just getting off on everybody just like cheering on Rambo and like people were like chanting USA, USA. It was actually very instructive to see how like fascism could take hold and like sure. propaganda could work. Cause it's like, right. I was with it, you know, I was like, yeah, let's do it. But it is, it's singular. I don't think that you have that experience at home watching it on video. That's no, for sure. Definitely not. No. Yeah. There's also the, the factor of comedies kind of working better with, with, with the crowd. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like to see, sometimes things in, in release, even if I have a chance to see it early, just because I feel like I don't understand it entirely always. Um, so, you know, that, yeah, that, no, that that's, goes that's through that's through point, well. yeah. and, and, I, and I think that that, I don't think that ever changes. You know, I do think that there's a way in which the more people watch things, not in a communal setting and not in a space where they're aware of there being a community around them, it, it does affect, you know, whatever timing, the idea of, can I laugh? Is it okay if I laugh? You know, that, that sort of uncomfortable feeling of some people finding it funny, some people not, you know, um, you know yeah. that, that, that only really happens in a space. Yeah. When these spaces are particularly like majestic or monumental, I, I feel like I also remember the experiences when those spaces were quite empty and, <laughs> and I was seeing something in it where then it acquires a different quality where it's like, I'm in some kind of abandoned theater, yeah. um, you know, or it's like the end of civilization. And I, and I definitely, you know, sadly, RIP had that with the Ziegfeld, right. um, you know, a few times in its waning days mm. uh, and going there for, I think the last film they screened there was, oh man, it's one of the latter day Star Wars sequels. It's very hard to remember those titles, I find. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's also the quality of that theater that, like the Ziegfeld, that anything you see there is kind of ennobled by it. So oh, it's cool. like, okay, uh, I don't really like this movie, 
but you know, <laughs> I'm seeing it here, you know, no, yeah, it's part of a continuum of history. Somehow. Yes. Well, it's a sort of thing where if I have to think about movies I saw in which theater, and I can think of significant experiences in each theater, but I can almost remember every single film I saw at the Ziegfeld because it just had mm-hmm. that feeling about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget what I, I was, it was a summer, I guess somebody could date this, maybe summer of 98. And we went to the Ziegfeld with my, my closest friend and we were informed that the air conditioning was out. And I think it was like a 98 degree day. <laughs> the air conditioning is out, but we're going to keep all the lights off, <laughs> you know, and we've got some fans going and it's not crowded. So if you want to go, you can. And we proceeded to watch True Lies in, 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 <laughs> and and I remember being like kind of grateful to just be in this giant room with nobody in it. It it felt okay, you know. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I don't even remember much about True Lies. No, yeah, me neither. I was gonna like if you were gonna do an Arnold Schwarzenegger in that kind of jungle atmosphere, I think I'd go for Predator. Oh yes, definitely <laughs> sweltering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess that it seems appropriate for like that movie is kind of almost partly about like the break about the breakdown of like a Hollywood genre in a way. Right. It's like mm. a, a lot of his late nineties. So sometimes it seems appropriate that you'd be in a theater that was like already entering end times. In, in some but way. I was just thinking um, about that, that, that experience because of, of this idea of the kind of grandiosity of the space. But a lot of times because those spaces were built so long ago, our interactions with them when they're, they're not in the best condition. Yes. Yeah. That's so true. That yeah. makes them even more romantic somehow, though. It, it, it does. They have the feeling of age. Uh, the, we were going to do a Movie Palace episode. If we didn't, we might do that in the future. We haven't yet, but I visited a number of Movie Palaces. And the ones that I liked, I mean, some of them, I mean, thank God, some of them have been like beautifully restored. But I do like it when there's a little bit of a feeling of, uh, of age to them. Like if they've been too meticulously restored, it looks like new, you know? Right. And they should feel like they're part of history. That's uh, that's part of the appeal. And related to that is I don't I don't want to be that comfortable either. <laughs> I don't want to go to a movie palace and lie down. <laughs> that's true. Those uh, we uh, one of the episodes you mentioned of the podcast uh, is about the Scala Theater in London. Mm-hmm. It's not around anymore. It's now a nightclub. But at the time, it was. Uh, I think it's. I'm not really good with architectural uh, eras, but I think it's Edwardian originally. It like was built in 1912 or something like that. And it's really got, the way that I describe it is that it's kind of like Sleeping Beauty's Castle by way of Jules Verne. It has like big round porthole windows on the facade of it and things wow. like that. But, and, but it's got like marbled stairs. But the Scala Theater was like a punk venue, basically. It was like they showed movies... They were known for kind of like trashy auteur movies like Russ Meyer and John Waters and things like that. This kind of neo-porn, but still kind of very cool movie called Thundercrack! Exclamation point. Um, and they would also show art films, like definitely. And they would do all sorts of and horror movies and all this kind of stuff. They also had punk bands playing there. And part of its appeal was that it was this grand old theater that was kind of falling apart. And it smelled like beer. There was a grandiosity to it, but it also felt like a punk venue at the same time. And it kind of allowed them in a way to make that space anything. Like you could show anything in the space. If you tarted it up too much, it wouldn't have felt punk enough to do some of the stuff that they did, I feel like. And and because something weird can happen when you come across a kind of palace, movie palace-like space that is very well kept. And my, my example here would be uh, this great, great cinema 
but also kind of unnerving uh, in Amsterdam. Oh, uh, the Tushinsky. I love that theater. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's beautiful, but it's also like, what if H.P. Lovecraft designed the theater? You know? <laughs> like the, the the extent, the kind of Baroque extent of the you know Beaux Arts kind of the, the idea that the architecture is, is like living, or it's like almost Cronenbergian and like just yeah. like dripping on you. It's just like, um, but also beautiful, but also it's like it's very vivid. <laughs> yeah, the exterior of that theater, people describe it often as like the Bat Tower or something. It's insane. <laughs> It's really amazing. The interior of that theater is incredible. The, yeah. the, the lights on that theater are incredible. But also the sort of like the, 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 the overly busy little pens that are, are there in the, in the back area mm-hmm. where like, like the little yeah. I guess, you know, what I mean, booths, I guess. Um, but there's just so many of them. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like three, three, three feet is another door or another wall, to, to another pen. <laughs> Yeah, and it's all curving. It does. It feels like you like it's like a, a space being or a Cthulhu kind of designed it. It's yeah. all like organic in this way that like envelops you maybe uncomfortably at times. But yeah. I think it's yeah. gorgeous though. Yeah. It's so it beautiful. It's all kind of rounded inside. Yeah, it's kind of doubly surreal because very often, you know, I'm, uh, you know, Eric, Eric and I are, are sometimes there for the the ITFA, the a documentary festival. So I'm yep. seeing some, you know, documentary in these surroundings. <laughs> like, it's a little surreal. Um, um, I do want to add about that theater, though, just in the interest of history. I mean, the kind of terrible history of, of the theater and the, and the theater, the person who made it, he was killed in, in, in the Holocaust. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's just... And, 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 you know, another aspect of the history that you have this kind of monument that's left behind and you can kind of forget the history behind it wow. as well. So, yeah. well, I, I guess we could uh, talk a bit about uh, some movies. I mean, the, the only other theater I would just mention from my experience, just speaking of absolutely uh, overwhelming spaces, was the uh, also, you know, no longer extant Astor Plaza Cinema. Mm. That was on 44th um, off Broadway, and that was just cavernous. I think it was maybe one of the largest screens, like 1,500 seats. But invariably, when I would go there, it would be me and like six yeah. Swiss tourists. Yeah. Um, and I, I had a screening there of uh, 2001 when it was in some... some I did you know, too. Release. Yo, no kidding. I did too. Was this, was this, I bet you it was 99. I bet you it was that sounds about right. 98. I bet you it was the oh, yeah. first anniversary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I saw it there as well. It, it was just incredible seeing, I mean, the frames from those movies and especially his close-ups just become, you know, absolutely oh. insane. You know, when you have a close-up on a blinking button and the screen is the size of a building, um, <laughs> it, it, it acquires another dimension entirely. No, I, re- I remember that experience and having the same sensations about its size, its scale, the sound, um, it being an empty room and there being, and this is not even just a saying it to, to have a line, but there were more rats in the room than there were people. Like there was oh my God. audible oh, yeah. rat community underfoot. And for some reason it didn't bother me at all. Cause something about the whole experience was just fantastic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that was clearly not going to last much more than a year or two later. And I think it was gone pretty soon after that. Oh, what a bummer. I've always wanted to see in a huge, I've seen 70 millimeter. Is it a 70 millimeter re-release? Did you see that of 2001? I believe that was a 70 millimeter release. I think yeah. so. Yeah, I want to say it was. I know that theater had capabilities for it, so I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, it definitely did. It was one of, it was, yeah, one, one of those that, that did. Um, it was also another aspect to it was that it was underground. You had to go down a couple oh, of levels. Yeah, nice. Like you would, if I remember correctly, you would pass like, you know, it must have been an HMV or something. <laughs> and then you'd, you'd keep going down, down, yeah. and then you'd come to this 
uh, just another strength. When you have theaters that are just hidden away like this, like what was the idea here? <laughs> you hope people just get lost and live there. I mean, I don't know. Another reason why you can't be offended by the rats. I feel like you're in their area. That's just that. That's right. But you like, asked for it. Yeah. But that's a whole other, the whole other genre of the kind of subterranean movie theaters too. Mm. I think it does create a different, you have a different feeling there, right? I mean, you're, you're sort of going into the earth and there's not like doors to shut out the sun. There's just simply no sun. You're, you're far down there. And I think there's a, I feel like that, that happens in France a lot, you know, mm. there's the, the, the famous, what's the, what's the area in Paris that the sort of mall area that's under the underground and they have oh. numerous theaters down there. Um, in fact, their main art house is, is all underground. And it, I definitely don't love it. I just, I, I don't like, I don't like the feeling of being kind of just totally claustrophobic in, in, a, in a tomb, basically watching a movie. Oh yeah, that's true. It's like a catacomb. I mean, the, it's something that I wish I'd been able to get into more. We were covering these episodes for the podcast were like a half an hour to 40 minutes long. And I realized as I was doing the cinema tech says that like that episode begins like pre-war and ends basically in like 1974. I was like, I've bitten off quite a lot to chew here, but there are multiple iterations of the cinema tech front says, as you probably know there. And the kind of most famous ones were early on. And the second major iteration of it was underground. And I kind of wanted to get into that aspect of it because there, I mean, these guys were, neither of these theaters were very big. The early iterations of the cinema tech front says were very small almost by design. I'm sure it wasn't exactly by design, but it played into this idea that it was like a select click of people were going to get into any movie. So it kind of made like, if you were part of the hip crowd, you, you know, you made it in. Um, But I wish I could have gotten into the difference between the first iteration, which was just kind of at street level and very small, but, and then a slightly larger, but underground. And it was also like not very ornate and Uh it was just like wooden seats I do wonder what that, how it would be different. Cause there were almost like different generations of French new waivers that right. attended different iterations of the cinema tech. There was like the early guys like Truffaut that went to the first cinema tech that was at street level. And then like a later crew went underground. And I wonder if they had like slightly different aesthetics because of that, you know, like where they Inevitably, watched right? their movies. I mean, hard to, hard to, hard to, to measure it, but I would, I would imagine it had to have had a different. Yeah. Some kind of vibe. Well, it also, it also makes me think about how, I mean, and we're all, we all have the experiences in New York and I'm thinking about kind of like aggressively bad spaces that I also had, great experiences at <laughs> me like like cinema classics remember cinema classics oh yeah it was at 12th street 11th street and they would show 16 millimeter prints of films and you'd have to go through basically a retail space to get to a back room and mm-hmm. risers were on like to the left of the screen so like the right of the screen was only like like the best if you actually wanted to have something towards the center it wasn't possible and the prints were generally pretty terrible they were like library prints from 16 millimeter but I saw so many films that way, and it was just this incredible thing to be able to walk down the street and see a film that maybe otherwise wouldn't be showing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say it, it, this was not by design, but like I said, we were going to do an episode about uh, palaces, and we didn't because there were just kind of more interesting stories around theaters that were a little funkier. Yeah. And maybe not as beautiful. Like in some cases, these were not, like I just said, the Cinematheque front says the first iteration of it was not comfortable. Maybe the first two iterations of it. And, you know, the Elgin Theater was kind of scrappy. They straight up say they were the poor kids on the block. But that maybe lends itself to more 
inventiveness, maybe. I don't know for sure if that's, you know, universally true, but it's like if you're scrappy, you got to like come up with more and more reasons for people to show up, especially back in the 70s when theaters were closing down, et cetera. Mm. And it's sort of the idea behind a lot of the micro cinemas these days too, you know, of oh sure that being part of the quality of it is that you're, you're the poor stepkids to the, to the big palaces. So it changes the way that you experience things by being in a, in a kind of a shitty space. <laughs> that creates a different feeling it and does. i feel like the, the history of anthology film archives is like that too oh yeah you know those, those spaces have never been particularly great and they remain compromised but i don't think that's a problem <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i i have you know countless fond memories i mean what one of my sort of formative ones it was seeing a complete cronenberg res- retrospective there and just being in this you know Almost, it almost felt like a tumbleweed was going to go through the, the, the bigger, <laughs> the bigger theater upstairs, and it always felt you had that feeling that you were in this echoic kind of. You were in the back of the room, if you were if you're sitting close to the screen. It was, just, and and I love it. I love you know. I will defend the anthology oh, yeah. movie going you know to my dying day, and it was, and the brick. I mean, everything there is just so. I'm glad. I hope they never like put any felt or anything anywhere. <laughs> nothing like nothing like nothing like going to that theater. Um, you know, before they did roof repairs uh, during a rainstorm, yes. just sitting amongst the buckets of water. Fantastic. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the like almost like Howard Hughes experience of like just leaks happening and you're <laughs> focused on the screen. You know, um, no, ab- absolutely. Uh, actually, I, I just since uh, Rigo, since you brought up the Cinematheque Tech again, I have to ask because I I think I saw one of your interviews for that episode was with one of the like few living. French New Waivers, Luc Moulet. Is That's that right? right? That's right. What's 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 Luc Moulet up to? <laughs> um, I don't know what he's doing now. He's like 90 years old. And I will say he does not speak great English and to his credit, like really was able to communicate quite a bit despite that and far better than I would be able to communicate in my poor high school level French. For those who don't know, he's this like super quirky. He, he was one of those Cahiers de Cinema guys, did a lot of film criticism before he did movies. But one of his movies, um, Brigitte et Brigitte, was like extremely popular because I think it just kind of came out at a moment when French New Wave was really peaking. And it's interesting. The thing that I most liked talking to him about was like a question that I always had about the French New Wave was how did they get so into things like Alfred Hitchcock and Howard Hawks, these extremely entertaining, very narrative kind of guys, and then come up with and be totally in love with them and want to emulate them in some way and then come up with these movies that were actually in a lot of ways kind of academic in a way and like blowing up forms and, you know, uh, making things difficult and opaque in certain ways. And it was interesting because I watched Brigitte and Brigitte and in some ways it's like, it's actually kind of funny, but it's not like the most engrossing watch. And he was telling me about moments in Strangers on a Train that he just straight up swiped shots from. Mm. And I went back and found them. And what's interesting is that they're not exactly the same. Like there's a there's a, a moment in Strangers on a Train when the murderer guy loses his cigarette case, I believe it is, or a lighter, and he loses it down a grate. And there's this, uh, you know, very Hitchcockian series of increasingly suspenseful, he needs that lighter because it's like a it's evidence of a murder so he's like putting his hand down this grate and stretching 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 trying to get it and there's just these shots of his fingers like trying to delicately scrape the top of the lighter and he's reaching and reaching and in Luke Moulet's 
it's like a woman who believes that one of her friends is cheating on a test. So she goes into the bathroom where she's sure that the friend has put a cheat sheet book up on top of the toilet. And there's a shot of her fingers scrabbling, reaching for the cheat sheet on top of the toilet tank. And I would never have put these things together, but he's like, no, I totally got that from strangers on a train. Like it has nothing to do with the movie. And his thing was like, just if you steal from something that's totally unlike your movie, no one will notice. <laughs> a, a good tip from a master. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I had I had to ask because he's also sort of I think there was a project, uh, I believe it was his writings that someone undertook. Uh, I guess it, there's sort of reports on Twitter of someone translating his writings because um, oh. he, he like all, all of the new waiver or a lot of the new waivers. Of course, he wrote a lot. And I think his writings in particular haven't always been as as widely known in English. So um, it's just interesting how these, you know, you'll have another generation reading and kind of imbibing uh, the, the ethos and, and what movies he was seeing. Yeah, I really look forward to that, actually, because it was hard. Like, I wanted to prep for that interview, but there's actually very little written about him. Oh, yeah. He's one of these guys that was definitely around and definitely important, but it was kind of like just not as widely disseminated. Yeah, same with like uh, Jacques Rosier, like uh, a Jeff Philippine. I only ever saw that French New Wave film in a NYU class, but otherwise it's, you know, it doesn't have the glam status of, you know, Godard and Anna right. Karen or something. That's right. Well, um, I think now might be a good time to uh, shift gears to the recent viewing portion of the show. <laughs> and, you know, of course, I just love the kind of happenstance of whatever we've been having to, to watch. And I know that's often very tied up with whatever, you know, we're working very closely on. Eric, I wonder if you would mind just kind of kicking things off a bit, if there are a couple of movies you've been watching recently you want to talk about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I mean, one I'll mention just because it's it's not as available, but I think it's about to sort of be even more aggressively available for festivals, et cetera, which is film I saw at BAM Cinema Fest, uh, Nothing Lasts Forever, a Jason Cohn film. Uh, and mm. he's the director of Mandapala and Love Mean Zero. And it's a film that he's been working on for over a decade. It, you know, it's it's a kind of, they don't make them like this anymore as as much as they should, where it's very, very smart, very detailed work of nonfiction reportage, but it's also just extremely entertaining. You're kind of spending, you know, 90 minutes with incredible assortment of characters who work in the diamond industry in some fashion around the world. And it has all these elements of genre. It's uh, at the same time, uh, I think that Jason Cohn is like one of the best interviewers there is. He's not, he doesn't shy away from having his voice in there when needed. Um, but really, it's a matter of giving people the space to speak and to show their personality through an interview. There's everyone from De Beers people to, you know, hustlers to, you know, Diamond mm -hmm. District figures from New York. Everyone winds up being kind of just this beloved character by the end, regardless of where you uh, may stand on their politics, etc. So uh, highly, highly recommend that. I think it's a Showtime film. I think it'll come out in the fall sometime, but 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 hopefully we'll uh, make the rounds between now and then. Yeah. I guess the other one that, especially since I saw it a second time and it kind of had an even different, uh, even better effect on me, which is a Marcel Lachelle with shoes on, the Dean Fleischer camp. <laughs> uh, sure. Jenny Slate co-wrote um, and does the performance. It's a film that I found extremely charming, if, if, if maybe a little bit on the sort of like slight side when I saw it uh, a little while back and then saw it again and found it just kind of devastating. Like there's something about it that's really? 
yeah, like just that it is is entirely about loss and misconnection and time passing and fractured families and things that maybe I'm primed to respond to at this point in my life. But mm-hmm. I think also just this, you know, not to sort of get into the backstory of it too much, but I think you see it more the second time around when you're maybe a little bit less enchanted by this talking miniature shell and a little bit more like thinking about what's going into it, which is that it's also kind of low-key a portrait of two artists who broke up and are making a work of art um in the wake of their breakup oh did they did jenny slane and her collaborator break up uh, dean fleischer camp uh was her partner for a good yeah. a good while um they've been they've been apart for a while now and have, whatever but they've remained friends and collaborators and something about this being about you know, the Dean Fleischer camp character in Marcella Lachelle-Suzanne is separated from a partner and is like in an Airbnb, which is where he meets Marcel Lachelle. And so to have Jenny Slate voice this character, there's, there's layers there that don't necessarily have to be your experience of watching it. But I think going back to it, you know, sort of like as an adult who's thinking about some of these things meant that it kind of hit me pretty hard the second time around. So I, I, I think it's a pretty special film. That's amazing. She's she's incredible. I've interviewed her before. In fact, there was I used to do a show called The Dinner Party Download, oh. and we did a live event where it was her and Jason Schwartzman, and we had them do a what would you say? We had them do the um, you think I'm funny scene from Goodfellas, but <laughs> she played the Joe Pesci character doing Marcel's voice. Amazing. <laughs> and. Uh, I will say what's interesting was that actually that voice is actually not that unlike Joe Pesci's voice. So it didn't actually have that much of a, it wasn't as funny as we hoped. It was kind of funny, but she is, she is such an amazing kind of combination of, yeah, like uh, completely hilarious and, you know, twee. And then like really her movie, um, obvious child about abortion Mm -hmm. couldn't be more appropriate now is just, also devastating. There's like yeah. a real sense of like humane melancholy rendering under running yeah. under her work. Yeah, I agree. No, I, that's that intrigues me. I was sort of focusing on when I was watching it, how it's like a documentary being shot, and I thought that was kind of interesting yeah. um, to take that approach. Yeah, it really works on that level. It's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it is. But you're right. I mean, it is fundamentally a very desolate situation and scenario. Yeah. I haven't seen that yet. I really got to see it. Everybody seems to love it. I think it's going to be kind of a slow burn culturally, you know, like I, hopefully it, I, I, I really love it. So I hope it does well, et cetera. But not that I am invested in, 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 in its business future, but, but it's the sort of thing where I think like, <laughs> it's going to, it's going to hang around. Um, and the diamond documentary you mentioned, I've, I've seen that. And that is, that is very interesting as well. When the cast of characters are uh, pretty amazing, especially one, the, the woman who was like in the industry, but now is like decidedly its strongest critic. Yeah. She's unreal. Yeah, she could she could have like anchored any number of like B noirs, you know, from the forties or fifties. <laughs> she's kind of amazing, and she's and she's also like a perfect foil for him as an interviewer because she, not like she's working against his instincts. In fact, she plays into his instincts because she's he's not somebody who wants to cut up an interview so that mm-hmm. you know, you're getting the clip that he wants you to say. So you he gives people room to talk, or at least he asks questions to allow them to have sort of more in-depth answers. And she's somebody who like everything she says is phrased for impact. <laughs> yeah. You can see her doing it. So not only is she giving him that, but you can also see her setting herself up to deliver the punchline and then looks at the camera in a certain way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, she's kind of a natural and, and the way he frames her as well. She's just, yeah, she's like, 
it, it's almost like she's doing uh, not like a stand-up act, but she's just phrased her. She's like, remember, she's framed like very central, dramatically, like you know, seated. But yeah, that's nothing lasts forever. Um, also, just kind of a, a pretty interesting like deconstruction of like supply and demand. Uh, mm. Definitely like applicable beyond the particulars of the diamond industry. I also found that pretty Absolutely. fascinating. The kind of whipping the curtain back a bit that it does. So, well, Rico, for you, what's what's a recent movie you've been watching, um, perhaps even multiple times, if you want? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you, uh, I got a couple, and they're uh, the exact polar ends of uh, the spectrum of film. Um, <laughs> I have a toddler, and uh, as most people know, toddlers will watch a movie over and over and over again. I feel proud that the movies that we've gotten him into are movies that actually bear repeating repeat viewing for adults and i'm not sure that we did that on purpose but that's how it's turned out and the the three movies that he watches over and over and over again are paddington paddington 2 and ratatouille there's i i kind of want to pick all of them but i think but i would do i think i'll do ratatouille because it was interesting after watching it over and over again i went back it's so good and I went back and read A.O. Scott's review of it in the New York Times, and he nailed something about it that I didn't really, you know, fully comprehend, which is that it's kind of about uncompromising excellence in artistry and the difficulties that come from committing yourself fully to like mastering something in the arts. In this case, it's, you know, sublimated as as uh, culinary, as, as cooking, mm. but you know, A.O. Scott kind of ascribed that to Brad Bird and that a lot of Brad Bird stuff is about like becoming excellent, like really like doing great work, you know? And I kind of am glad that I'm giving my kid a kind of early steeping in this idea of like, you should commit yourself to something that you really believe in. But at the same time, the movie also kind of says, you know, you don't abandon your family in the process of doing that. You, but you don't abandon yourself. It's like kind of trying to come up with, the perfect balance of like committing yourself fully to your art, but also like maintaining your relationships to the world. Basically don't Mm. let it, don't let it overwhelm you. The character of Linguini, who is kind of a, almost a fake artist. Like he has to learn some humility and like give the real artist his due and resign himself to what he's really good at, which is kind of supporting the artist in an interesting (laughs) way. It's all really interesting. And the other thing about it is that the soundtrack for that movie is freaking fantastic, especially if you're into French, you know, chanson or anything like that. The chanson that, that is written by Michael Giacchino for that, that repeats, it appears many times in the film, but is especially kind of evocative at the very end. It's a song, I can't remember the name of the woman who sings it, but it's this really excellent French chanson song. It could have been, you know, sung by, I guess, maybe Edith Piaf. It's probably too happy for Edith Piaf, but it's mm-hmm. like, it's really beautiful. And it makes me at a time when I'm not able to travel very much, both because of the pandemic and because I have a toddler, it's like, totally sweeps you away that movie is just and i and i literally watch it probably every day now and it's <laughs> and i'm still not sick of it and then very quickly paddington is like the best like pro immigration movie ever made <laughs> it is, oh, wow. it's kind of like yeah i mean if you look at he's from peru and what i had totally forgotten until i watched it again is that appearing throughout the film is this calypso band that functions almost the same way as jonathan richmond did and there's something about mary they just kind <laughs> of appear in sequences making no sense like suddenly they're just like there paddington's washing windows and they're there with him on the like window washing platform mm. but they're playing 
music that is kind of calypso music, which was huge in England back in the, maybe even as early as the 40s, but certainly through the 50s. And a lot of the songs that they're playing are songs that were calypso songs about England, written by immigrants, about the like difficulties and glories of living in England. And it's in subtle ways like that. And then in like, like very straightforward ways, like having their next door neighbor who is just like, obviously, he, he just is barely shy of like shouting racial epithets at the poor Paddington bear, <laughs> you know, oh, and is treated like a total jerkweed. It's like the sunniest picture of like, we should just accept people and uh, not stereotype them in a way that just like is totally palatable to anybody. It's it's a really brilliant movie and really funny and beautifully shot. It's like if Wes Anderson did, uh, uh, you know, a Paddington book. Yeah, no, I've, I've always been a Paddington fan and I'll say a few more words on that, but Eric, you- Yeah, I was just gonna, I was gonna say like two words about Ratatouille. I love that you bring up Ratatouille. In fact, somebody else recently discovered Ratatouille that we're bringing up in a conversation. It's one of these films that's destined to haunt me forever because <laughs> it was a, I remember like it was around when I first started becoming a critic and uh, befriended a lot of the folks at Reverse Shot. I was writing for Reverse Shot and all these friends of mine were talking admiringly about these Pixar films, which I, at that point in my life, I just could not accept that there was something for me in animated films, like I was serious. I needed to watch all of Godard. I need to, you know, <laughs> like find the Tarkovsky films and see them on 35 before I saw them on DVD, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow everybody was spending all their time talking about these kids' movies and I resented the hell out of it. And so I refused <laughs> to see Ratatouille. And so, so I was convinced that Ratatouille was a dumb musical with a theme song called Ratatouille as like sung by Jim Durante. And this is like, I, so it took me forever to finally see Ratatouille. And of course, because I was that over the top dismissing the thing, it wound up being like this total, you know, touchstone, fantastic film that survived the test, you know, that, that will last forever. And you know, here we are as adults still talking about it. Sure. And by the way, and it's not a musical. I mean, like there was this period. Now they do musicals again. But for a while there, Disney was like, let's lay off the musicals for a while. That was like one of their non-musicals. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's how that's how off base I was. Well, you, you, you saw the error of your ways. And now um, you're back in the Ratatouille fold. Happy to have you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, Ratatouille is definitely something I, I too have to uh, revisit. I, I liked it a lot, but uh, I think now hearing all about it, I, I really want to re- revisit it. For my own recent viewing, I mean, a couple of things kind of been all over the place. And, you know, one thing I saw recently was One Trick Pony. Oh, uh, yeah. Which I don't really know. I wish I could retrace. I mean, you know how it is like, you go down some rabbit hole and all of a sudden you need to watch this movie. And then I can't even retrace why that, that was it. But that's often like some of the more interesting experiences. So this is a movie from 1980, I want to say, uh, directed by Robert Young. But the big thing about it is that I think it's the only movie that was written or co-written by Paul Simon. He wrote it, huh? He was in it, but he wrote it? Yeah. And he, yeah, he's, he's in it and he plays a singer-songwriter. But, you know, what's interesting is he... Crazy. Yeah, he plays a singer-songwriter who's kind of... He's had his run. It's an interesting kind of one of these post-60s movies where he was a well-known folk singer and had, you know, his signature hits. Uh, but then, you know, in the 70s, it just seems like he's been kind of touring a lot with his band. But, you know, it's not like it's, it's like a Bob Dylan situation where he's like entering a new phase particularly. So he's in this interesting just kind of in-between mode. He's recently you know broken up with with his wife but they still like still visits with her i'm not gonna say this is like a terrific movie but it's just so like resolutely 
not even downbeat, but just like ordinary and just like unadorned that it's, it's kind of great to see, you know, him, him do it. And he also, also as a performer, I have to say has a kind of weird presence when he's not singing. Really? Yeah. Just in the sense that it's, it's also kind of downplayed and, and downbeat and almost like, I want to say dry. It's, you know, it's an interesting movie. And then, you know, there are also like these perks that like, you know, Rip Torn is in it. Oh, nice. Yeah, he plays a music producer, or he plays like a the kind of business end who wants him to do an album where he has to sell out in some way. And the way he's selling out is by pairing him with this hotshot young producer who is played by Lou Reed. What? <laughs> I remember yeah. when this movie came out, I like dimly remember kind of ads for it or something like that. And remember, I remember the song, One Trick Pony, Yeah, which is like a decent song. But I never, I never gave it much shrift. But I'm, I'm guessing in 1980, does it still have that kind of like uh, neorealist kind of vibe to it? It's interestingly kind of in transition, you know, from like a kind of yeah loose, more baggy kind of 70s road movie versus you know moving into you know I've also been some reason watching like. 80s like dramas like heartburn and, and I don't know, you know, stuff where you can you can see the shift that's happening in terms of oh this should this should be like uh you know this should be more structured in a way yeah um, a little more stylized yeah yeah but what i like is when it is just kind of kind of him hanging out there's a lot of they pick a, like these really long scenes where he's just kind of playing driving games with with his band and, you know he drives the van the, 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 the tour van and yeah. they're like let's name artists who you know musical artists who died young and then they just kind of go back and forth with that for a while oh that sounds um, wonderful actually <laughs> i would love to but see Luke, that and it makes sense i mean obviously he's uh, i i was like oh really he's kind of like a dry and he's a good performer but he's on saturday night live a million times and he actually yeah. like does very well kind of i mean he was in any hall like he yeah that's low key really well yeah well it's interesting because he's kind of what role he played in any hall is kind of the kind of flip side to, to what he plays in this like here he's playing the guy who doesn't really want to care too much you know mm -hmm. and doesn't want to kind of whereas that guy is the you know clearly you know this is a mover and shaker he's very yeah. slick and that's almost more like the rip torn role and actually i have to say rip torn looks a lot like F. Murray Abram in Inside <laughs> Lewin Davis. Do you remember? Wow, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like this is some sort of like missing link for when, you know, I remember yeah. when Inside Lewin Davis came out, there was a lot of more interest in like singer songwriter movies that there hadn't been one about someone who was kind of like down on their luck or something. And I feel like this kind of fits in there somehow. Oh, yeah. That's a, a bizarre, sad double bill. Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't know yeah. like singer movies. Yeah. The, the woulda, shoulda, coulda double bill. Yeah. It's just like. I have a thing. We don't have to get into this if you don't want to. But I have a thing about. I love Inside Lewis Davis. I thought that was oh, the yeah. best film of that year. And many people hated it and thought it was unremittingly depressing. And I actually think that that movie is an, has an upbeat ending. Nobody believes me, though. Interesting. Yeah, um, it's very it's it's hard to kind of totally distract. But I'll just say for people who go back and watch it, he looks at a movie poster shortly before the ending, and I think that is the key to reading it as a positive thing. Mm. I think it's a movie about how the journey is what's important. No, I I could see it. No, I have all the time in the world for Inside Lewin Davis. I, I I love it. Also, you know, like great you know cat plot point movie. Um, but, <laughs> but it's true. That I, I, I Now I want to watch it again. Any excuse to watch it again, I, I, will, I will see that again. It's pretty um, wonderful. But you were going to say yeah. something about Lou Reed, though, in that movie. Oh, no. Well, just that he is also kind of playing 
I mean, you know, Lou Reed's reputation in interpersonal dynamics, we'll say, kind of precedes him. Um, here he's playing like this super like unctuous, like maybe the sort of guy that he encountered and would have chewed out, you know, if the guy, you know, you know, it's like, oh, let's let's add a string section here. I just feel like that's what we need right here is a string section, you know, um, and he's, he does it to a T. And he's also just talking this like very kind of casual, like kind of way that without the edge of, you know, of a lot of the songs, which which I love. But that's also interesting to see him kind of tap that. Yeah, that's interesting. He's kind of being the guy that he probably hates the most in the world and therefore knows better than anything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's one, of, it's one of those. I think that's something that kind of happens a, a fair amount. It's like, finally, I can do do the character, the character of the person I can't stand. Yeah. Although for some reason, the thing that first came to mind was Tom Cruise doing basically Harvey Weinstein in uh, uh, Tropic Thunder. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know if he hates that guy. I don't know if he just knows that guy. Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, but um, yeah. So I mean, so that's that's a uh, one trick pony. So yeah, you can watch it on. What did I watch it on? Something like Voodoo or something like that. <laughs> Why not? Sure. And then one other thing I I, I watched that I also want to mention, just because you know, I I was watching some pretty interesting documentaries in the past month and a half that came out. We're kind of holding together in a similar way for me. Uh, autobiographical ones that were using forms and form in a new way like Beba, which is this really intriguing film by a young filmmaker who is kind of just reconciling all these different aspects of her experience growing up in New York um, in this crowded apartment on the Upper West Side with, you know, one parent who is Dominican, uh, one parent who is Venezuelan, and reconciling her Afro-Latina heritage uh, and doing it with a movie that is just entirely exploding the form, um, which I thought was kind of neat. And this kind of very like hard bitten voiceover and also not entirely likable presentation, self-presentation, just talking about just getting into terrible fights in her family. And she also went to Bard. So there's another streak of like being exposed to that inside circle. Wow. But anyway, that's one thing I saw and it sort of inspired me to see another documentary from earlier generation uh, called Kelly Loves Tony. Whoa. Uh, which is from 98, and it's about a Laotian-American couple. The uh, woman is trying to, like, get an education, but she gets pregnant, and her boyfriend, like, loves her, uh, but is kind of, is an ex, like, gang member. He's definitely on the straight and narrow now, but is just kind of beset by legal troubles. But it's just very, it's great watching her kind of try to push through with her ambition to get an education, but being drawn into these, like, family obligations with her in-laws and everything and actually a very tight film it's less than 60 minutes oh yeah so i thought that was pretty interesting and that's on the criterion channel so i also like they they have it as part of this series of Asian yeah movies. i just looked it up 1998 i guess it aired at one point on pov the pbs exactly. documentary series mm -hmm. i definitely want to check that out it looks amazing yeah and it's also just a lot of a mix of kind of over the shoulder documentary camera work and also just like sort of not clunky but just sort of old-fashioned just i'm giving my subject a mic to sit and talk to the camera a bit about how they feel and it's just kind of refreshing uh, to see it in this circumstances like, like when i see that and i see it working it's always like miraculous to me yes because mm -hmm. my style is definitely as an audio documentary is to have lots of variety to you know keep you engaged if mm -hmm. you can just train 
something on an, on, on an unpolished person, right? Like on somebody who is not even trained to be a speaker necessarily. And you can make that work. That's great filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, the filmmaker is Spencer Nakasako. And yeah, it's, it's on Criterion Channel. It's, it's yeah, and it's a sort of a faster watch. And then I only realized later, I guess the title is a play on Tony Loves Chachi. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just so far removed from like yeah, the more I, urgent. I guess in 1998, people still dimly had a memory of that 1970s sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, a, yeah, one of those weird like pop culture detritus. And But, you know, whatever, if it got like 10 more people to see it, then, you know, I guess that's <laughs> that's that's worth it. That's on Criterion Channel. Oh, I think I already mentioned that Winter Ponies is a VOD, but you know it's, yes. it's worth worth a look to. All right, I'm going to check them both. Yeah, I mean that that's part of what I love is the kind of mix and match quality, and I'm yeah I'm very happy to come back to Ratatouille and Paddington. One thing that came to mind about Paddington is that do I remember correctly that Paddington was supposed to represent like displaced persons, you know, of, of the time. And I, 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 you know, I think that was like something about the, the outfit that even he was wearing kind of mismatched and everything. It, I think it might also echo like from when it was originally written, what you were saying. Yeah, I w- it wouldn't surprise me at all. We actually yeah. have modern Paddington books. They are not the original tellings of them. And they've oh. been like, I think, slightly watered down. Okay. Um, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. I'm not, as, as a non-Brit I am not totally right. familiar with this. What I will say, though, is that uh, the movies drew me to Paddington's Twitter feed, which in the <laughs> world that we're living in right now, like everybody needs to subscribe to immediately. Like you need to follow the Paddington Twitter feed. Like it is the most calming, wonderful, twist. It's unremittingly positive, very yeah. simple, always polite. That's the other thing about Paddington is that he's unfailingly polite. Yes, um, yeah. And it's also about colonialism, by the way, in a weird way. In a way, the message of the movie is that the, the way that Paddington learned English is that the explorer, known only as the explorer, went to Peru, stumbled mm. upon these bears, became friends with them, and like gave them English language lessons and taught them kind of like, you know, the ways of Englishmen. And it's kind of like now Paddington was sent to England because his Aunt Lucy back home can't take care of him. Mm-hmm. And he sent, she sent to England because it's like, oh, well, they've learned all about England. And it's like in the past, they took in people during World War II. You'll be fine there. And he goes, mm-hmm. and it's actually kind of hard. A family takes him in, but they're only in some ways grudgingly. Some of the members of the family don't want to take him in. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like things have changed. Yeah. When, when, you, when you start peeling back the layers, there's so many other things going on. It's really interesting. Sure. And I'm positive that, I mean, like, there's no question that the filmmaker knows what he's doing. Um, also, shout out to Sally Hawkins, who I think does yeah. some of the, really some of the finest, you know, acting to a tennis ball on a stick or whatever is going on with the CGI. She is, she's <laughs> able to like, do like 150%, you know, that, that you need. She's, I don't know. I, I just loved it. She is fantastic. And the ending of, uh, I think it's Paddington 2. The ending of Paddington 2, if you do not cry, you are an inhuman beast. Like It is <laughs> so simple and so perfect. You could probably even like just skip to the end and just watch the scene and not know any of the plot and you would still like weep. It's just beautiful. <laughs> well, I'm happy to end on, on a Paddington note of, of, of calm and serenity. And, we need uh, it. So we can we can bring it in for a landing there. Rico, thank you so much. It was a great joy talking about your show. And just remind me again, um, the second episode of 
season two is now out. So the third episode. Yeah, that one is about the Westgate Theater, a tiny theater in suburban Minneapolis that arguably saved the movie Harold and Maude from oblivion and helped turn it into the cultural phenomenon that it became. And it's like a wonder to me, it's my favorite episode because it's about small suburban theaters and mm. which I spent my life going to, which I think maybe I took for granted a lot. And I think the world took for granted because they're pretty humble places, but the kind of importance that they have, I think is maybe underrated. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, there is basically, obviously, it goes without saying, a movie culture wherever movie going exists. And, and it's distinct to, to who's going and, and what they're seeing. So um, absolutely stand by that. Well, all right, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Um, and thanks again. We'll hope we can do this again sometime in the future. I would love to. We'll, I'll do another season just for you so I can be back on. <laughs> all right. Thanks, sir. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening.